monster with her motivation. So this mind of ours, which is simply clarity and cognizance, has tremendous potential, tremendous ability and possibility. However, at the moment it's ability and potential is covered by the clouds or the film of our mental afflictions, which are disturbing emotions and wrong views, contorted attitudes, and also the karma created under their influence. So these afflictions and karma, while they pollute the mind, they aren't the nature of the mind. There's something covering the mind, obscuring the mind. And so it's important to remember when there are times when those afflictions just overwhelm us and we're completely under their control, or so it seems like it. To, to stop, to pause, and to identify this is an afflicted state of mind. And this is not the nature of my mind. It is not who I am. It's something added, adventitious, covering the pure nature of the mind. And being able to identify our afflictions in that way and remember that they aren't who we are, they aren't an inherent part of our mind, that gives us some mental space to, to see that we can step back from the affliction that the story it tells us isn't true, that we can come out from under the influence of that disturbing emotion. And so knowing that is very important during those times when the afflictions are strong. Because it gives us that space to doubt the affliction, to realize it's not who we are, to not take it so seriously, to not buy into its story. Maybe even to laugh at it. So let's have that strong intention to observe the mind and to practice discerning what is a virtuous state of mind, what is a non-virtuous state of mind, an afflictive state of mind. So to have a strong intention to, 
to observe the mind and learn how to discern those. And then when we see the afflicted mental states, to create some space in them. Remember that their story isn't true. Remember that they're impermanent and they're going to fade away, whether we want them to or not. Remember that they aren't who we are. By remembering that, then we have some space to cultivate genuine love and compassion, to call up our good qualities and enhance them, to expand our awareness to the plight of all living beings. and to generate the wish, the aspiration to be able to benefit all these beings by freeing our own mind, by developing our good qualities to the fullest extent. And so may that be our motivation for sharing this evening. So when we start to observe the mind and develop um, our capability to identify virtuous and non-virtuous or afflictive states of mind, we begin to notice, you know, that those different states of mind um, bring different moods and bring different feelings within our body. And we can see when there's afflictions, yeah, our stomach often gets tight, our heart races, our shoulders get tight. Yeah. Hmm? You can get headaches. You can get a headache. Your palms may be sweat. You start talking a lot. Or you fall completely silent. The afflictions there, we can't say anything. Other times you're so anxious from the affliction that you're just jabbering without noticing what you're saying. Yeah. And so to be able to, to see, you know, and to, to feel the physical sensations, to see the change in behavior, because being aware of these and how they correlate with mental states is really helpful for identifying what those mental states are. Yeah. Look at the difference in your breathing when you're angry and when you're peaceful. Or the difference in your brain breathing between when you're anxious and when you're having kind thoughts. Yeah. It's quite evident when we stop to watch. 
So observing the body can be one way to help us discern what the mental states are. But it also helps us to see how the mental states affect the body, you know. And sometimes can uh, we begin to see, hey, you know, for my own good health, I have to work with my mind. Yeah. I remember one time I was really angry, and I was vacuuming the floor, and then all of a sudden I realized. If I don't do something with this anger, I'm going to get hurt vacuuming the floor. Because the way I was pushing it, you know, you know, it's like, I'm going to hurt myself if I don't work out my mind here. Even though it's just a simple action of vacuuming. But that kind of thing helps us to, to see how the afflictions work. Also, we can start to see that when the afflictions are in the mind, when we have strong clinging attachment, when we have anxiety or fear, when we have anger or resentment, the scope of the mind becomes extremely narrow. Have have you noticed that? Yeah? That the mind becomes very narrow. We can only think about that. There's the entire rest of the world. There's more information about the situation. But when our afflictions are operated, we only see this and we're convinced this is reality. Somebody else tries to give us more information or tries to help us adjust our mood and we get mad at them and tell them to go away and leave us alone. But actually, what they're doing is trying to help us, you know, to kind of creak open the mind to remember that there's the rest of the universe there and that is not all about me. <laughs> and it's not all about me and my current problem, which is the worst one in the universe. Yeah. To see, hey, it's all this, like, look what's going on, you know? Like, we could look out the window and see all this all the smoke and just say, wow, it's so smoky, we have to breathe this bad air, it's so awful. Do we ever think of the people who are living where the fires are and what they're going through? The people who are there with the origin of the smoke? Or the animals, the insects, the bunnies, the deer, you know? who are in those places. Uh, we forget all that when we just focus, you know, on, I don't like this smoke. Uh, but when we're able to open our mind and see more, then our whole attitude changes, doesn't it? Yeah. And we see that 
actually, in fact, we're the fortunate ones. We haven't had to evacuate, at least not at this moment. Okay? So, you know, learning how to work with the mind. And this is something that we have to do through actual practice. Reading Dharma books is not working with the mind. Yeah. Attending teachings is not working with the mind. We have to we learn from those two activities, but then we have to really, you know, be aware of our mental states, what's going on inside, and have a strong determination to um, a strong aspiration for virtuous mental states and a strong determination to work with the afflicted ones instead of just rallying behind the afflicted ones and thinking our anger is right, our anxiety is true, and our attachment is the best thing on the planet. Instead of that, you know, being able to identify them, step back, learn the antidotes, how to look at the situation in a different way, how to create space in our mind. And that's what real dharma practice is. Yeah. So only we know when we're doing real dharma practice. All the visualizations, all the chanting, the robes, all of the bells and the whistles and the drums. All of that is stuff that is trying to set the stage and encourage us to transform our mind. But it's the actual transformation of the mind, releasing the afflictions, enhancing the good qualities, that is actual Dharma practice. So that goes on completely in our mind. Nobody else sees it. Because you can be doing pujas and your mind is a million miles away. Isn't it? Or you could just be sitting there and really fighting, you know. If you don't like the, the analogy of fighting, but you know doing something with the anger, doing something with the self-pity, doing something with the anxiety. It's interesting, I'm just thinking, you know, because we always talk about ignorance, anger, and attachment, and so many people nowadays suffer from anxiety and fear, and we don't see the, you know, you don't, when you look through the list of mental factors, you don't have fear and anxiety. And yet, you know, these are things people really suffer from nowadays. Yeah. Personally speaking, I think fear and anxiety both relate a lot to attachment. When we have attachment to someone or something, then we're anxious about not getting it, we're anxious about losing it. We're anxious about them not approving of us, which is meaning we'll lose them, you know. But I think a lot of times attachment breeds that kind of anxiety. 
So it's, it's, you know, it's there in the mental factors, even though you don't see the name. Okay, so let's come back to our text. So there were a couple of questions uh, that somebody wrote me after uh, last week's teaching, so I, I think I'll just answer those briefly. So the first one is, what is a lineage holder? Now that is a very good question. The simplest answer is, they're the people whose names are in the prayer of the lineage masters. Yeah? That, that's the best way. They're the people whose names are in that prayer. Now, how does one get to be a lineage holder? Yeah. And I remember asking one of my teachers this, and the answer was something to the effect of, you know, the person whose name is in that prayer, yeah, is the person in that particular uh, generation who maybe is the foremost practitioner or expert of a certain practice. Okay? There can be many other people that hold the lineage, yeah, that whose names are not in the lineage prayer that everybody says. But when you say the lineage prayer with all the names, you add your teacher's name to it, you know, or you add the name of your teacher's teacher, or whoever, you know, the lineage passed down through to get to you. That's all I know. Don't ask me any questions, because all I'm going to say is I don't know. <laughs> you hear? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Then, Another question arose. Well, in, in the long run, it talks about, you know, you should request a teaching a three, three times. You know, request a teacher to teach something three times. But in the West, that isn't done. You schedule a teaching, people come and you have the teaching. So are we actually doing this properly? Okay, so in, in ancient times and into that, you know, one or two people or a group of people may request a teaching, so they may request it three times, or if they know the teacher well, the teacher knows that it's, uh, that this group of people is qualified, maybe they only need to request it once, yeah. But the group who requests the teaching is the one who sponsors it, who, you know, they, they're the people who pay the traveling expenses and give some dana and set up the teaching venue and things like that. So in Dharma centers nowadays, that's kind of what the Dharma center's role is. They make the invitation and then they set up the circumstances and supply the material resources for them. And then in olden times, you know, the benefactors would do that. Then many, 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 many people would come. Not all those people who come to the teachings go to the teacher and request three times. 
Otherwise, if they did, the teacher would have no opportunity to teach. Yeah. So, like with His Holiness, you know, the long rim teachings we've been having, Captain Ling Rinpoche requested them. Other people joined in with him. You know, then all these people came, and the people who come, you know, also make donations to His Holiness, make donations to be distributed uh, to, among the attendees, make donations to support, to feed the people, and to pay for the, you know, all the expenses of hosting the teachings. But, you know, and then everybody each day does the mandala offering, and at that time each day you're requesting His Holiness please to give the teachings. Okay? So that's kind of similar to what's going on now in the West. You know, you may have the people at the Dharma Center who get together and talk and maybe under the guidance of their teacher think about what teaching they want to hear and what would be most appropriate for the people at the center. They go to a lama and request it. The center covers the expenses, but because the center does need help in doing that, then they often charge people. Here at the Abbey, we don't charge people. We just tell people, you know, it's all, everything's by donation only. Yeah. But I think it's kind of a comparable system. I don't think it's, it's you know, something that people are doing wrong. What about Western teachers? teach and set up their own programs and well, mm. oh, so Western teachers who teach and set up their own programs. Well, hopefully, you know, there's people who have asked those people to teach, you know, and said, will you please teach this text or please do that. You know, usually it's, uh, you know, I mean, nowadays a lot of people want to become teachers. They think that's kind of cool. Um, actually, it's, it's a huge responsibility. So I think it's always better for people, you know, to be requested to teach. You know, although there are some circumstances when you're dealing with people who don't know that they're supposed to request. You know, in the West, for example, Many people don't know that they're supposed to request teachings and that the teacher isn't supposed to teach unless they request three times. So you might, so if the teacher doesn't say anything, then everybody misses a possibility. Yeah. So in that kind of situation, the teacher out of compassion may say, you know, I want to teach you this topic or I want to teach you this subject simply because the students don't know that they're supposed to ask. Yeah. But that's something different than the people who want to be a Dharma teacher and go around promoting themselves and advertising themselves and so on and so forth. Yeah. But you see, even somebody asking, requesting, yeah, sometimes it's the, the students who who, um, you know, as His Holiness says, somebody is, is nobody in the Tibetan community. They come to the West. The students give them titles. The students request them to teach. 
and make them into somebody famous. Yeah, so it's not even the teacher advertising themselves at the beginning. It's the students doing some big hoopla. Yeah. So you have to look at each thing individually. There's no general statements really I can make. But today we will get into the topic of spiritual mentors and disciples and, you know, what that means and how does that work. So we, um, okay, so, uh, so we talked about the title of the text, we, or the qualities of the author, we talked about the qualities of the teaching, we talked about how to teach and how to listen. So now we start the fourth main outline, which is uh, how the disciples are guided by the actual teaching. Okay. So this has two subdivisions. How to rely upon the spiritual mentors, the root of the path, and having relied upon them, how to progressively train your mind. Okay. So in the first one, how to rely on the spiritual mentor, the root of the path, we have a detailed explanation and a brief explanation. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to go into to all the super details about it, okay? Uh, I mean, you can look at the, you have the text, so you, you can look at it. I want to comment first about this thing, the root of the path. How to rely on the spiritual mentors, the root of the path. Okay, so the a root is what nourishes a plant, and a root also is what stabilizes the plant. But the root is not the whole plant. Okay, so in the same way, having a good relationship with our spiritual mentor. Um, stabilizes us in the practice and nourishes us in, a, in our practice. Yeah. And so it's very different when you have a spiritual mentor than when you don't and you're relying solely on books. Okay. Having said that, His Holiness always says, don't feel like you have to in a hurry, find a spiritual mentor and grab onto one, because actually uh, the Buddha is our fundamental spiritual teacher. Okay, so we always rely on the Buddha as our spiritual teacher. And that's the meaning when we do the chanting on Tuesdays and Saturdays, Namo Benzi Se it's homage to the fundamental or the root teacher of Shakyamuni Buddha. Okay? So just to know that, that the root is, is to nourish, to stabilize us, but it's not the entire practice. Okay? Clearly. Okay? Now, this whole topic is sometimes translated as guru devotion, which is a wrong translation. Yeah, the, uh, the Tibetan term is Lama Tenpa. Lama can be translated as guru, 
Yeah, but also means spiritual mentor, you know, the person who is guiding you, who is mentoring you. Yeah. And tempa means to rely or to depend upon. So it's about how to correctly depend or rely upon a spiritual mentor in a way that benefits our Dharma practice. Yeah. So it's not about how to have blind faith in another human being and go, Ali Ali Salami, I worship you. Okay. Yeah. So it's this kind of misconception that um, that led in previous times for the early Europeans who came to Tibet to call it Lamaism because they thought that people just worship their teachers. Yeah. So it's not about worshiping. It's about how to rely or depend on someone to guide you on the path so that you can really benefit from learning from them. Okay? So the first thing we talk about this are is what are the characteristics of a good spiritual mentor? Because you don't just place an ad in the newspaper, you know, looking for a spiritual mentor, apply here, and the first person who comes along who looks okay, you hire. No. <laughs> it's not like that. Okay? So we should look for specific qualities and we should get to know somebody before we take them as our teacher. Yeah, so it shouldn't be love at first sight here. It should be, you know, hearing the teachings, observing the teacher, you know, see the impact of the teacher's teachings and words on your own mind. Yeah. Okay, but, and to really check what their characteristics are. Okay, so there's a uh, very nice verse in the ornament for the Mahayana Sutras, Mahayana Sutra Alankara, that um, outlines ten qualities. Okay, so the verse reads, a spiritual teacher with discipline, calm, complete peace, more qualities, with effort, rich in scriptures, who has thoroughly realized suchness, that's emptiness, is eloquent, loving, and never disheartened. On that one, rely. Okay? So let's look at those ten qualities again here. Yeah. Okay, so the first one is uh, where it says discipline. It's having tamed the mount of their mind by training an ethical discipline, ethical conduct. Okay, so somebody who upholds whatever level of precepts they've taken, whatever ethical restraints they've taken, who upholds those. Okay, and so that's an important quality in a spiritual mentor because we are the disciples looking to them as our role models, 
than as the doctors who are going to cure us of samsara. And we know that one of the fundamental practices, you know, to cure us from samsara is ethical conduct. So we need a teacher who models ethical conduct for us. Um, I don't know about you, but I need that kind of teacher. <laughs> and the, the Maitreya, who wrote this, the Sutra Alankara, you know, says that too. Yeah? So that makes sense, because if we want somebody whose conduct of body and speech is pacified, not somebody who's all over the place, behaving any old which way, yelling and screaming and sleeping around and getting drunk and this and that and the other thing. Okay? Now there are teachers who do that. I'm not going to comment on any of them. That's not my business. Yeah, what I'm commenting on is what the sutra says and what I personally know I need is the qualities. Okay, so don't ask me about Lama X, Lama Y, and Lama Z. Okay? Then the second quality is with uh, someone with the ropes of mindfulness and introspective alertness or introspective awareness in concentration have made their mind serviceable. So somebody who has some experience in developing serenity. Yeah. So the first quality was the first higher training in ethical conduct. This is somebody with higher training in the this uh, second uh, someone with experience in the second higher training of concentration. So clearly, if we have a teacher who knows something about concentration, they're going to be able to guide us. The third one, third quality, is they perceived profound suchness with the eye of wisdom. So suchness or thusness, that's a synonym for emptiness. And the eye of wisdom refers, you know, to um, best thing is direct perception. And if not that, then with a correct um, inference. And if not that, then at least knowing the teachings, having a correct understanding of the teachings. Okay, so that's the higher training of wisdom. Then the fourth quality is they've studied a lot. Yeah. So, you know, you may say, well, well, why is that important? Well, because if somebody studied, they, then they know the whole path. Yeah, at least intellectually. They know it. They know the lay of the land. They know what the signposts are. They know the, the sequence in which to develop certain qualities. Okay? So we want teachers who are able to, to teach us, you know, a variety of teachings, not somebody who hasn't studied very much, who can only teach us one practice. Yeah, because our mind is very complicated, His Holiness says, and therefore we need many practices. So we need someone who can teach us different practices to work with different aspects of our mind. Okay, fifth quality is they have good qualities that surpass their disciples' qualities. 
That one seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? But, you know, for some people, they, they don't think, you know, does this teacher have more qualities than I do? They're just looking for charisma. Yeah. And as you'll notice when I read the verse by Maitreya, charisma is not one of the ten qualities. So we shouldn't just look for charisma and pizzazz and that kind of stuff. Okay, but somebody who has good qualities that surpass their disciples. Then six, you know, is uh, a good understanding of emptiness. So understanding it by scriptural citations and logical arguments is certainly you know, well accepted. Yeah, and uh, for obvious reasons that if we're going to be able to realize emptiness and get out of samsara, we have to rely on somebody who has the right understanding of emptiness. Because if we rely on someone the wrong understanding, then we'll practice the wrong, the wrong thing. Okay, then the seventh, um, somebody who's a proficient speaker with the skill to guide others progressively. Okay? So someone who can explain the path well. Yeah? They, they know how to explain, you know, there's this step and then there's this one and there's this one, so that you can get the idea. They can introduce the topic, they can explain the details, they can summarize them at the end, they can give you you know, explain it in one paragraph, they can explain it, you know, unpack the whole thing. Yeah, so somebody who um, is a proficient speaker with the ability to teach us progressively. Then eight is somebody who has a loving nature because they're moved by compassion when they teach. So somebody who's genuinely caring for the welfare of the, the disciples. Yeah, not somebody who's looking to have, you know, their little uh, trail of disciples uh, following them, going, my teacher's a Buddha, my teacher's a Buddha, and throwing money at them and uh, this kind of stuff, okay? Yeah. But you know, some people, that's, that's what they look for in a teacher. They want a teacher who's famous, who has tons of disciples, who, you know, is charismatic, but, you know, that isn't necessarily uh, the person who's going, who's a good teacher, or maybe somebody who's a good teacher, but maybe not the, uh, a person who's going to be a good teacher for us. Because, you know, due to differences in karma, you know, there may be many teachers who are very qualified, but we're going to gravitate towards certain teachers and not others because of previous karmic connections. So we don't go by who our friend's teacher is, you know, who our buddy's teacher is, because we have different karma and we may not be attracted to that same person. Um, Okay, but somebody who has loving natures, moved by compassion when they teach. 
so they have a good motivation when they teach. Someone who has constant joy and enthusiasm. Yeah? So somebody who likes teaching, who likes guiding disciples. Not everybody who is an excellent practitioner likes teaching. Yeah? Somebody asked me recently, you know, are all the monastics at the Abbey going to become teachers? And I said, I don't know. That depends on people's individual personalities and what they're attracted to. Some people may want to do that, some people may not. But it, you know, somebody can be an excellent teacher, but an excellent practitioner, but not necessarily teach a whole bunch of students. Yeah, they may just have a few, a small group that they teach. Yeah. Or they may really prefer to work with their work on their practice and not teach very much at all. But of course, His Holiness usually nudges them after a while. Okay, and then ten is somebody who has overcome lassitude for teaching. Yeah, so they're loving. They don't get disheartened. They don't get fed up with their disciples. Because sometimes, you know, the students really act abominably and a teacher could get really fed up at some point and say, I've been teaching you this for the last 20 years and you haven't practiced it yet. Stop wasting my time. Goodbye. You know? And I look, sometimes it's interesting to to, to look at, you know, like what is my teacher teaching now? And what were they teaching when I started? And it's basically the same stuff. Yeah. So I could say, well, why are you saying the same thing that you said 40 years ago? Well, the, I don't need to ask because I know the answer. Because <laughs> you haven't mastered it yet. You know? <laughs> So we need teachers who are very patient and don't get disheartened and fed up. Yeah. And especially, you know, if students act really poorly, sometimes students, you know, they'll yell and scream and swear at their teacher, they'll stomp out on their teacher, they'll do all sorts of really wonderful things. Yeah, and so, you know, you need, if you have a hot temper, you need a teacher who's going to be pretty patient, you know, who's not going to say, ciao, bye-bye, I'm fed up with you, okay? Now, your teacher may, you know, have discipline you in a certain way. I heard a, a story about Achen Chan. He had one student who... Um, they're supposed to stay with their teacher for five years after the day. So, you know, he was there five years. The next day he wanted to leave. I want to go wandering. I'm going to go away for five years. And Anshan Chah tried to say to him, look, what's better for your practice is to stay here. You know, but the guy wouldn't listen. I'm going to go away. I want to wander. So he went away. And either two or three years later, he came back and he said, I want to come back to the community. And Ajahn Sa said, 
you told me you were going to be away for five years. Come back at the end of five years. And the God is going, but, 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 but. You know? But that was Achen Chao's way of training him. I don't think he was angry and retaliating or anything like that. Okay? But, you know, sometimes students do not act very appropriately. <laughs> I, th- I think sometimes, you know, once in a while when somebody does something I don't like, you know, and I think of what I've seen people do towards my teachers, and it's like, oh, they, you know, this is, this is not they, you know. Really what, what people sometimes do. Yeah. Towards, you know, towards my teachers, like, you know, if you're going to respect anybody, you should respect these people. Okay, so in this um, day and age, it's hard to find somebody with all ten qualities. Yeah, so the Lamrim is a very, uh, they're quite aware of this, and so they're going to tell us what to do if you can't find that kind of person. Yeah, so uh, you look for five qualities, okay? The three higher trainings, the understanding of suchness or emptiness, and compassion. Okay? So those are essential. It says uh, those are essential given the times, because we live in degenerate times. And if they are difficult to find, so if you can't find a teacher with all five of those, then see it as a key to have more good qualities than bad ones. <laughs> Which is obvious, but again, if somebody is, you know, baited by charisma, they don't pay attention to that. You know? What I've also heard them say is, okay, somebody, somebody who has more good qualities than bad ones, somebody who is more concerned with future lives than the present life. And third is someone who's, who cares more for the welfare of others than their own welfare. So if you can't find all five, go to those three. If you can't find all three, then just go to the one and have more good qualities than bad ones. Okay. But you can see, you know, if a teacher cares more about future lives than the present life, then they will have begun the process of subduing their mind from very gross afflictions, because that's what you need to do to create the cause for a good future life. And then somebody who cares more about the welfare of others than their own welfare, then you can, you know, be assured that that teacher is going to be compassionate and they're going to want to help you. They're not just doing it because they have to or, you know, so that they can get the perks or something like that. Okay. Now there's some, I thought I would read some quotations. Yeah. Okay. So this is an interesting quotation. It's from the collection of indicative verses. Oh, the Udana uh, Vagra. So it says, people relying on someone inferior wither. Those relying on one of their peers stay the same. 
those relying on leaders attain to sanctity. Therefore, rely on those ahead of you. Okay? So if you practice under the guidance of somebody who doesn't know very much, you wither. Somebody who's equal, you don't. You stay the same. Somebody who's more advanced, then you're going to grow. Endowed with discipline, complete peace, and even more superior wisdom. If you rely on any such mentors, you'll even end up ahead of them. Yeah. So if you rely on a teacher like that and you practice well, you may surpass your teacher in realizations. Okay. Um, and then, you know, to reinforce this thing about somebody who knows about emptiness, uh, here's this one very famous quotation. Okay. The sages do not wash away evil with water. They do not remove the suffering of beings by hand. They do not graft their realizations onto others. They liberate, teaching the truth of reality's nature. So that's how the Buddha helps us, you know? Uh, and that's how, and so who is it that teaches us the reality? You know, the ultimate nature is our spiritual teacher. So they, like the Buddhas, you know, don't wash away our negativities with water. You know? The Buddha can't remove our suffering by pulling a thorn out of our foot. And they don't, uh, they can't transfer their realizations to us like you graft, you know, one person's skin on another. You know, so the way, the, the way that we advance by relying on a spiritual mentor is through receiving teachings. Yeah. Now, the question comes, do the teachings have to be given to me individually with nobody else present? Yeah. Unless you are an exceptional disciple, that's not going to happen. Okay. If you are an exceptional disciple, I watch my teacher who will go to his teachers who will teach only him. Yeah. But for the rest of us, we don't really have the karma to call forth a, an individual teacher who's going to spend their time only teaching us. Okay? We need the merit of the entire group that will enable the teacher to come to teach all of us. However, when the teacher teaches, the teachings are directed at us as individuals, too. Yeah. So we should really listen and take them in. And I've had the experience, you know, of being at a teaching with hundreds or even thousands of people and feeling like that teacher was, that teaching is directed specifically, exactly for me, you know, because it's really hitting right where I need it. Yeah. So it doesn't, you know, we can have that kind of experience even in a huge crowd, even if the teacher doesn't know our name, you know, it depends.
depends on the situation. But whatever teaching we receive, we should try and put it into practice. If we can't put it into practice fully, because we don't have all, we don't have the ability to do that, then at least, you know, remember the practice or the basic steps of the practice in your daily practice and have an aspiration to do it in the future. So don't get, you know, like, oh, I've heard so many teachers, I can't practice all of them every day. What do I do? You know, uh, you practice what you need to practice at your own level and you aspire for the rest and you review the important points of the ones that you can't do. Okay, then the characteristics of the disciples who rely on such a teacher. Now this is interesting because we usually think, I want a good teacher, but we don't think, how can I make myself a qualified disciple? Because we think, I'm here and the teacher is, should be so proud to have me as their student. And that's not exactly the right attitude to listen to teachings with. Okay? So, you know, in order to really benefit from the guidance of a teacher with those ten qualities, or five, or three, or one quality, we have to make ourselves into qualified disciples. Yeah. So this is a practice that we try and do ourselves over time. It's not like, okay, I start and this is the degree to which I'm a qualified disciple and then I forget about this. No, we should always practice and try and make ourselves a better disciple. So, yeah, so the characteristics of a good disciple. Actually, there's... Um, where was that quotation? Oh yeah, here it is. So it's from the 400 stanzas. So Aryadeva said, Aryadeva said, impartial, intelligence, full of endeavor. Thus is explained a vessel for the teachings. Otherwise, qualities of the teacher have no effect. There is no change in the listener. Okay, so you might have an excellent teacher, but if the students aren't qualified, then not much happens. Okay, so what do we need to cultivate in ourselves to really take advantage of an excellent teacher? Okay, um, so first quality. Yeah, what in the verse was said impartial. So rejecting bias and being endowed with intense aspiration. Okay, so somebody who's not biased, who's intelligent, who can think clearly, who can take, uh, or let's differentiate that, somebody who's impartial and unbiased in the sense that they can listen to new ideas and they're willing to contemplate new ideas and let new ideas in. So they don't just immediately say, this doesn't agree with what I think. Yeah, 
or I don't like this idea, teach me something else. Okay. But somebody who is open, who can hear new things and consider them, you know. Because if we're very narrow-minded and we can't consider new ideas, you know, then when the teacher starts telling us about emptiness, or, you know, that's a pretty new idea, we're going to say, I'm not going to listen to that. Or if the teacher starts saying, you know, anger is a defilement, if that doesn't agree with our idea, then we're going to stop listening. Okay, so we need to be impartial, receptive. Second is having the intelligence to distinguish uh, what is a spiritual path from what is not. Okay, so somebody, you know, we need to develop our intelligence, you know, to distinguish what is virtuous and what is non-virtuous. What do I need to practice? What do I need to abandon? So, of course, our teachers are teaching us this all the time. But very often we don't listen well to the teachings. Or we listen and we write something down. But, you know, when it comes to thinking about it and think and relating it to our lives, we're out to lunch. Yeah. So somebody could, um, you know, could be saying, oh, it's so important to follow the guidance of a spiritual master. It's so important, so important to ask for advice and listen to the advice and act accordingly. But that person isn't intelligent in the sense of really understanding what they're saying. So when their teacher gives them advice, then they say, I don't like your advice. <laughs> you know, why are you telling me this? You know, or this is ridiculous. This other teacher tells me this, and I like their advice better. Yeah. So um, you see sometimes disciples who will go from one teacher to the next until somebody tells them what they want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And those people usually don't do so well. Because they go to ten teachers, they get ten different pieces of advice, yeah, and and maybe if they're lucky, one of them matches their own opinion, but maybe none of them match their own opinion, or maybe they don't get ten pieces of advice; they get eight pieces of advice because most of the teachers agree, yeah, but. They, they still are clinging on to, but, you know, you don't understand what I'm saying. I really want to do this. So, you know, what's a teacher to do in that case? Then you just say, well, do what you want, you know, because they're not listening in any case. Okay, so we need to be intelligent, you know, and like, okay, what, what do I need to practice here and what do I need to abandon? Because if we aren't, you know, our teacher can give us one advice and the next and the next and say the same thing over and over again and we're out to lunch, you know, and we don't listen to any of it. And then we go back and say, please give me advice. <laughs> huh? 
I won't tell you any stories. <laughs> you know them. Uh, you know them? Oh, okay. <laughs> so you can tell the stories. <laughs> Everybody else, them, I guess. Yeah, we all do, don't we? Okay, and then the third quality for, of a disciple is paying close attention to the teaching when listening. So somebody who is enthusiastic about the teachings, who has a lot of energy to learn, who pays attention during the teachings, yeah, so they're, they're not looking at their watch, they're not looking at the attractive man or woman in front of them or behind them. They're not thinking about lunch. They're, you know, really enthusiastic about the teachings. Okay? So we should, you know, think about those qualities and try and develop them ourselves. Because if we do, then we can really benefit from a relationship with the teacher. If we don't develop these qualities, you know, even the Buddha comes and sits in front of us, you know, we sit there and go, what are you teaching me, you know, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of it has to do with us, doesn't it? And it's so interesting how people will hear totally different things at teachings. Yeah, totally different things. I've had on numerous occasions given a talk about working with anger, and then people come up to me afterwards and say, you said I shouldn't get angry, but blah, 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 they have a question. And I say, really? I said you shouldn't get angry? That's very strange because that's not what I think. You know, maybe you better listen to the teaching and see if I said you shouldn't get angry. Because I don't remember saying that. You know? And they look at me like. Okay. But we hear, you know, because maybe if somebody explains what the disadvantages of anger are. And we hear, you should not get angry. But the teacher hasn't said that. The teacher's just explained to us, if you get angry, these are the disadvantages. That's very different than saying you shouldn't feel something. Okay? So we need to, to listen closely. Okay. Then uh, the next subtopic in here is how to rely, you know, after we've selected a proper spiritual mentor and we've become a proper disciple, how to rely on uh, our spiritual mentors uh, in terms of our thoughts. Okay, now I want to pause here and say that, you know, this whole, first of all, you can have more than one spiritual mentor. Usually we have one person who, uh, who we refer to for personal information and, uh, for, or for personal guidance. And that's very often um, our first teacher because they were the ones who really touched our heart in the Dharma and 
started us on the path. Yeah, so we often call that person our root teacher. However, it's not, that's not always the case because for some people, I mean, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama is the teacher of thousands of people, but he can't give personal advice to all of them. Yeah, so, you know, people have many teachers and some of your teachers may have a lot of disciples and some of your teachers may have a few disciples. And um, some of your teachers may start out with a few disciples, but as time goes on, wind up with a lot. So you may have started out with being able to have, um, you know, to see your teacher personally and get guidance. And then after one or two or three decades, that's no longer possible because there's so many students there, you know? So you have to see and you can cultivate relationships with other teachers. So I know for myself, you know, when my initial teachers started getting lots and lots of disciples and it became very difficult to get an appointment to see them, then I also started relying on other teachers who didn't have so many disciples who I could go and visit and spend the whole afternoon talking to and learning from, you know. And so, you know, all those different relationships are equally valuable. Uh, so it's fine to have more than one teacher. And I, I mean, I do, and I value all of them, and they all nourish and teach me, you know, in a similar but different ways, which is really, really helpful. Okay, so how to um, rely upon our teachers and our thought. So the first point under that is cultivating faith, yeah, which is the root. So here the idea is, um, well, the, what the text says is, with great faith, focus on the master's good qualities. Do not consider their faults, even for an instant, for it will hinder your achievement of spiritual realizations. If through carelessness, or non-conscientiousness, or lots of afflictions, you regard their faults, confess it immediately. Okay, now we read that kind of thing, and that sounds pretty heavy, doesn't it? You know, it's like, focus on their good qualities, don't look at their faults, because if you see a fault, you're going to hell, and if you see a fault, confess it immediately. Okay, so we can often read it like that, and then it becomes very uncomfortable inside of us. So what this verse is actually trying to say is, you know, when we're in the process of looking for teachers and assessing their qualities, that's the time to look for faults. After we've, we've assessed their qualities and we've determined that somebody is a reliable teacher and we accept them as our teacher, then after that, that's not the time to go looking for their faults. Why not? Because if we go looking for their faults, for sure we will find things we don't like. Why? Because we have judgmental, picky minds. Yeah, 
even if the Buddha were here, we would find some fault with what the Buddha was doing. Yeah, according to our likes and our dislikes. You know, if we like to start on time, and the Buddha was here and started late, we would get upset. Wouldn't we? Because I like to start on time. If, uh, you know, we like to have a written, a written outline to file, follow that the teacher's prepared and the Buddha doesn't prepare one, we'll get judgmental. How does he expect me to learn without making this outline for me? You know? So we, we can get critical, not because somebody really has a fault, but because somebody does something in a different way than we do. Or somebody else has a different, different priorities than we do. But, we, and, but, you know, these things bug us, and we can get very, very upset about it. You think? Yeah? So... So if we get upset about these things that have really nothing to do with the teacher's qualities as a spiritual mentor, but just their way of being, but we have lots of opinions and judgments, you know, my teacher doesn't clean their own teacup after they come in the kitchen, you know, what kind of example is that for the rest of the monastery? We can get upset about you name it. But the point is, if we do that, and we're only focusing on things that we don't like, then we're going to run ourselves into a hole of thinking, you know, this teacher is just a, a total idiot. Yeah? And we'll get angry, we'll get irritated, you know, our, our opinion factory will work overtime, and we will have lots of judgments that we, you know, have against them. We will try and convict them in the court of our own mind. And what happens when we do that? We are unhappy. Hmm? We are unhappy. Yeah, first of all, we're unhappy. Teachings and realizations. Yeah, we, we stop attending teachings. We're not going to get realizations if we do, don't, you know, attend teachings if we don't do the practice. We stop doing the practices they taught us. Yeah, because, you know, this teacher just isn't a good example because look at their coffee cup. First of all, they drink coffee. How can they drink coffee? It's an intoxicant. They shouldn't drink coffee. And they use milk. You know, we should all be vegans. What are they doing using animal products when the animals suffer? This teacher is such a bad example. And they use tea that's not organic. You know, and they, they're wearing shoes that were made in Brazil with child labor. You know, I can't, this teacher doesn't know anything about the Dharma. You know, they're completely corrupted. And then we stop practicing whatever wonderful practices they taught us because we're picking at faults. Yeah. 
So our fault picking does not hurt the teacher. Our fault picking hurts us. Yeah, because it makes our mind unhappy, negative, we stop practicing, start blaming, and dig ourselves into a nice hole. Okay? So it's for that reason that the text uh, says, you know, to um, recall their good qualities and don't consider their faults because it will hinder your spiritual realizations. It's not because you're bad, you know, or it's not because you're not supposed to see faults or, you know, like you're doing something wrong. It's just, you know, you watch what happens to your mind when you do that, and it isn't helpful. Okay. So, let's pause here. Do you have any questions or comments? Yeah? Um, I've, I've once heard that someone say the teacher's like fire. If you get too close, you'll get burnt, but if you go too far away, you won't get any heat, any warmth. And this whole idea of cultivating the appropriate distance with the teacher, is there some truth in that? Is there a danger of getting too close as much as there is of going too far away from the teacher? Okay. So danger of getting too close versus too far away. It depends on our own aptitude and faculties. Yeah. So if we are a person with a lot of opinions, we get negative easily, we get angry easily. If we stay too close to our teacher because our mind is so untamed, we will create a ton of negative karma through all of our negative opinions, okay? Or if we're a person that gets very jealous easily, then if, we're, if we stay too near our teacher, we get jealous and competitive with all the other disciples because we want more attention than the other people get, okay? Um, on the other hand, if you're a mature disciple, you know, then you're, you don't have those kind of afflictions manifest in those uh, situations, and so it becomes easier to be closer to the teacher. On the other hand, you know, if we stay too far away, then like you said, we don't get any heat at all, because we, you know, some people are afraid of their teachers, because actually they don't want their teachers to point anything out to them. <laughs> yeah, that all they want from their teachers is for their mentors to say, very good, what you're doing is good. And if they don't go to talk to them personally or don't go to teachings very often, then of course their teachers can't say very much. Yeah, so they protect themselves that way. But the, the thing is then they can't grow because they're not able to receive some of the feedback that they need. Hmm? But it's really up to us to to determine how close or distant we are from the teacher, you know, and it's going to be different with each of our teachers, and with one teacher, different students will will be different. Mm-hmm. First question, um, when we hear teachings from different traditions, such as the Tibetan and Chinese Mahayana traditions, is that okay? 
and especially if we mix the practices from the two traditions. Okay. So is it okay to have teachings from more than one Buddhist tradition? Why not? All the teachings come from the Buddha. Yeah. And then the second question, is it okay to mix the teachings? The there you... Yeah? To mix the practices. To mix the practices. There you have to see what the practices are and if you're combining them correctly. Okay? So, for example... Okay. Um, what's an example? Oh, like learning to develop concentration. So let's say you study the Theravada teachings on how to develop serenity, and you study the Mahayana teachings, how to develop serenity. Yes, you can practice both of those together. It's only going to help you because, you know, the same topic is, uh, you know, it's basically the same topic. They point out the faults of the hindrances a little bit differently, but still we have to eliminate the five faults and the five hindrances, even though they're, the lists of them are different. You know, so in that case, yes, it works fine to, to combine the practices. In another situation, um, let's see, what would be an example? You know, like the different traditions may have different ways to do nundro practices. So you don't want, it's, you wouldn't be have, committing a fault. That, no, that's not such a good example, doing nundro, because the practices are basically the same. Um, what would be a good example? Oh, everybody's talking at once. How they realize uh, nirvana compared to how the mind mm -hmm. yeah, you know, the whole object is different. Um, that I'm not sure. You know, they're looking at the aggregates. Yeah. And then they make the switch. It's quite different. Yeah, they they you know in the Pali tradition you look in the aggregates and you see that the aggregates are not a person. But that's not so different from uh, the four-point analysis when you're investigating to see if the I is one or separate from the aggregates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't mix those two things together in one meditation session. I would do them in different meditation sessions. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to teachings on both to, to really find out what the, the, the subtlest object of negation is. But I wouldn't say that those two things were contradictory so that practicing one would harm the practice of the others. Yeah, I'm trying to think of an example where, you know, you would really get yourself in a stew. Yeah. One of the reasons why it might be a little difficult for you is I think when, when you're when, you, when your understanding isn't very deep mm -hmm. and you have a lot of opinions, then you might grasp on when you might say this is good and this is bad, or you might try to do, like you said, do, this, do two different things in the same session yeah. and not realize that they're different. I think 
I think it really is, uh, depends on the student and how well they understand what their teacher is telling them and, and what the sameness and the difference are. And yeah. that's only through experience. You can't, there's, I don't know any other way. It's only through your own experience and your own checking yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, when I do this and I do that, what happens, you know, kind of. Yeah. And what so, really so what, and what you're saying is right. I'm, I'm looking for an, a specific yeah, example, which I'm not finding. Yeah. But what you're at the moment, but what you're saying is correct, is in the sense of if you don't have a very deep understanding, and you've studied uh, Dzogchen, and you've studied Mahamudra, and you've studied emptiness, and then you try and mush them all together into one practice when you don't know any of them well, yeah, in that kind of situation, yeah, you're going to run into trouble because you, you don't really understand things very well. Okay? What I've also seen people do is even within one tradition, they may mix up, you know, Tara practice, Kala Chakra, Chenrezi, all into one meditation session. They, you know, they start out meditating on Chenrezi, then Chenrezi dissolves into them, they reappear as Kala Chakra and generate the Kala Chakra mandala, but then Tara flies in from somewhere and they start, you know, doing Tara practice and then after a while they think of wisdom, they meditate on emptiness, so that makes them think of Manjushri. And so they take all these different sadhanas and make pudding, you know. <laughs> so don't do that. And that's just even within one tradition, you know, so that's not very helpful. Okay. Yeah. Um, going back to the list, the ten qualities for a spiritual mentor, mm-hmm. I'm wondering about... Okay, so kind of what's the difference between three and six? And, you know, and if you have, is, I mean, having a direct perception of emptiness, that's the ultimate. But, you know, if you can't find a teacher like that, take, find a teacher who has um, an inferential realization. If you can't find a teacher with that, find one who has the correct conceptual understanding. Okay, so it's, you know, with all of these, it's not like, you know, okay, I'm going in, how's your ethical conduct? Well, yeah, you did pretty good. You didn't shout at that obnoxious disciple, but you eat at night, you get a big bag X for that. Uh, you know, you wear your robes good, you know, you check that, and you walk, you know, you seem to be a pleasant person, that's good, but, you know, you don't brush your teeth enough. Big black eggs there, too. You know? Or whatever it is, you know. You don't polish your shoes so you look like a slob. Or, you know, you got cross at that one disciple and shouted at a disciple. How do you know? You know? I mean, I have one friend who, you know, was with her teacher once. 
And she used to wonder, I mean, because sometimes her teacher would shout it at other students. And one time they were talking and working something out, and then the teacher got a phone call and, uh, and started shouting at the person on the phone, you know. And then the phone call ended, put it down, came right back to my friend, and continued as if nothing had happened. And at that time, my friend realized, you know, her teacher shouting at the person on the phone, another student, was the teacher wasn't angry, you know. The teacher was trying to make a point to an obstinate student. Yeah. So don't judge the teacher as having a quick temper, you know. See it as skillful means, something like that. Okay. How do you sustain a heartfelt connection to the teacher without becoming very attached? <laughs> How do you sustain a heartfelt condition, uh, uh, heartfelt connection without becoming attached? By realizing the defects of attachment and realizing that the teacher is not your personal property. <laughs> Yeah? That our spiritual mentors belong to the universe. They are not our personal property. We have no right to become attached and possessive of them. Yeah? And if you find you're becoming attached and you're doing all sorts of tap dances to get their attention, so that they'll look at you and say, oh, you're such a good disciple. And then you can say, oh, no, I have all the love that mommy and daddy didn't give me. <laughs> um, you know, if you watch that that's going on in your mind, then pay attention and, you know, remind yourself that the, pur the purpose of the teacher is to lead me to enlightenment. Yeah? I'm not sure, but I can say that the way some people teach emptiness, they can teach it in a way that gives you some experience, yeah, and, and you know, you don't know for sure, and you can't go up and ask them. But, like I said, you know, the way they're teaching, it gives you some experience. So you figure, gee, something must be happening with that person. Okay. Then for the for qualities of the student, um, I've always thought maybe, um, I mean, to really be able to take the, the feedback and the honest evaluations that you teach you, there's a certain amount of courage and a, Humility. Yeah. Definitely. To that definitely. I mean to be a, a, a receptive vessel for the teacher for the teachings, we have to really reduce our pride and our arrogance and be humble. And we have to uh, um, be able to take some hits to our ego. If we can't take any hits to our ego, then the teacher is going to 
treat us very sweetly, which we may like a lot, but we're not necessarily going to grow. And definitely, if we are arrogant, you know, that's going to make a big obstacle. And arrogance comes in so many forms. Arrogance isn't just always with your nose up in the face, saying, I'm so smart, I know better. Arrogance can be this, this kind of stubbornness of, you know, don't tell me what to do. Yeah. Or arrogance can be, you know, uh, what I was talking about before, somebody who says, uh, you know, give me advice, but I'm not going to take it. Yeah. <laughs> or arrogance can be um, somebody who feels, you know, I should give you advice. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, being very critical, you know. So, arrogance comes in, in a lot of different forms and it's not always so easy to, to um, discern. You know, sometimes arrogance comes in the form of, um, well, I've read so much. Yeah, I've read all these books, I understand all these high practices. So I'm a very advanced person. Yeah, and we come in with that kind of assumption. And of course, you know, then the teacher usually teaches us an elementary practice to, you know, that we're not doing at all because we're too advanced to do it. Pushing away. You push yourself out. out. I, I sometimes I feel it's arrogance. Mm -hmm. Can it be? It might be. In some cases it could be arrogance. Kind of like I'm too good to be told anything. Or I'm too special to be told anything. Um, but sometimes that, that behavior doesn't come from arrogance. It may come from, let's say, low self-esteem. Yeah, but then the low self-esteem doesn't say I'm too good. I'm too, yeah. see that at all. Yeah. So you you just have to see. Um, you know, I I can't really tell for an individual. Yeah, what it is, but we just you know we have to see because it it really comes in different forms. Sometimes arrogance comes in the form of. Um, uh, well, we had a situation recently of, you know, well, I want to take refuge, so you should give refuge right now when I want to take it because I'm here, you know, being demanding, yeah. But then what you're describing, kind of building up a wall, you know, if that comes from arrogance, it may, it may not, it depends on the individual. Can be protection. Yeah. Can what? Protection. Yeah, but sometimes we're protecting ourselves from the person who's going to help us. Yeah, because we think the person's, you know, we, sometimes 
we do this protection thing just as a reflex, you know, because that's what we do with everybody is we build some protection. But then when you do that with your spiritual teacher, that's the person who's going to help you. So again, we're, it's not very useful behavior to do that, even though it may be habitual for us. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances. Grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable. And their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lotham's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. Mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tents and gets of chimrazi, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders. Spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially Ashravasti Abbey in the West. Blue.